come this Lord's Day to continue in our study of the God of all comforts. In Hebrews, we're told that God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, God provided us a picture that pointed to Christ as the only real sacrifice that takes away sin. Those animal sacrifices pointed to Jesus as our substitute in the wrath and judgment. Hebrews again compares the heavenly reality with the earthly types and shadows in that while both required innocent blood for an atonement in the heavenly tabernacle, the sacrifice offered must be far better than that offered by the Aaronic priests. This is why Christ does not act as a priest in the earthly tabernacle, the picture of the true, but rather in the heavenly tabernacle where the full and final reality of God's dealing with our sins takes place. Christ in His incarnate human body, raised to glory now, appears in heaven before God to carry out His everlasting high priestly duties for us there. He is a far better priest than Aaron who was broken and polluted by his own sin and failure. But Christ, our great high priest, is impeccable and glorious in all things. He never fails. He never ceases his intercession for his people and never presents an inferior sacrifice that cannot save like Aaron always did. But there's more. Aaron had to appear repeatedly to offer an animal sacrifice that could never take away the guilt of sin because they all were mere pictures of the true sacrifice of Jesus. Christ only appears once to make His sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. For His one offering finishes the work of atonement for His people for all time. That's because Aaron only appeared with the blood of others, the text tells us. That is, with animal sacrifices. But those poor beasts could never provide an adequate offering for us and for sin. Here lies another glorious contrast between the Aaronic priesthood and Christ's priesthood. Were Christ like Aaron, He would have to enter over and over into the heavenly tabernacle, bringing sacrifice after sacrifice of Himself, suffering over and over for our crimes. But that would mean that Christ's sacrifice possessed the same defect as the animal sacrifices of Aaron. They both couldn't settle the sin debt for God's people once and for all. But no, Christ appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That's when animal sacrifices were forever retired because the true sacrifice of Christ took place. There was no longer any need for a type or picture of Christ for now at last we have Christ publicly making the perfect once for all time offering for our sin unto God. No wonder God has comforted us by His oath to Christ to make Him our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Himself described His death on the cross as just such a sacrifice. The night He was betrayed, He said of His memorial supper, This is My blood of the New Testament shed for many for the remission of sin. Then a bit later, Jesus described how God's sword of wrath 
would smite him and scatter the sheep. No doubt these were dark sayings and grievous to be heard by his disciples. How, they must have thought, could a dead man, a dead Savior, save anybody? But to us, they are a part of our comfort because now we are assured that our Redeemer never again needs suffer in our place or lay down His life to save us from our sin. All the sorrow and agony and humiliation are over for our beautiful Lord Jesus. That's because Christ has forever put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now, if Christ were no better a high priest than Aaron, we could expect that He then must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And so this is a precious truth about the superiority of our Lord Jesus and His sacrifice. But then in verse 27 we read, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And the writer of Hebrews is here bringing forward an additional proof or argument for the one-time sacrifice of Jesus. Even though it does not follow or breaks that part of the type of the Old Testament sacrifice which had to be repeated over and over and over. Here's another argument why this is so. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Men only die once for their crimes, and then they are judged. Death is like the entrance way to the great judgment hall for our crimes. And death is a part of the judgment, and yet it's not the end. The judgment is declared finally at the last day, and we find that death is, if only it had been annihilation, we would have been better off than to then enter into eternal judgment and wrath in the fires of hell. But then notice what it says. And so Christ was once offered to bear the sin of many. So because we die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ also was offered once to bear the sin of many. There is this similitude, you see, between Christ the man who dies but once and His poor people, His poor sinful people who die once to enter into the judgment, right? But does Christ's death bring Him into judgment? Does He enter into judgment? Just as His people were all doomed to die and the judgment passed upon us for our crimes, so Jesus taking our place in the judgment satisfied it for us all by dying once. We would have died once for our sins, and so Jesus, perforce, could only die once for our sins on Calvary's tree. There is a great departure then, though, from how it would have gone for us and how it goes for the Lord Jesus. But this is why the death of the saints is no longer penal, that it is not the entrance to judgment and wrath, Rather, it's the entrance into everlasting life and glory beyond comprehension. You see, the fact that Christ once died to bear the sin of many 
changes the course of the death of believers from being death unto judgment, death and then enter into the judgment, to death and then enter into the glory, enter into the everlasting life. Death becomes for the believer only a doorway unto great joy and happiness in the presence of God. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He received the wrath of God for our sins. He was treated as guilty in our place and for our crimes laid upon Him at the cross. You know, it had been broached before in Hebrews, way back in chapter 2, that this was the case, that Christ would die for the sin of His people, for the saving of His people. We read in Hebrews 2 at verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. This means that Christ was incarnate in our humanity, made like His people, that is a little lower than the angels, for the express purpose that He might suffer death. And we see Him henceforth crowned with glory and honor. And it is His glory and honor that He was incarnate to suffer death that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. There's His great glory and honor. The sacrifice He made in the place of His people even unto death. And so you see Hebrews 2 had already broached this subject that Christ would also die for the purpose of saving His people, not for any crimes of His own. Of course, Paul preached this same idea in many places, but for example, in 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 18, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Why do we need reconciling? Because there was enmity and wrath against us because of our sin and because we in turn hated God for the judgment of our sin. But now there's reconciliation to Himself by Jesus Christ, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, that is the apostles, the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So here is Paul preaching this idea, the treating of our sins as though they are the Savior's, and He bearing the penalty and cost and wrath and judgment for our sins, then makes His righteousness available to clothe us with, that we might appear before God not guilty, but perfect in the sight of God for Jesus' sake. Treating our sins as though they were the Savior's sins, of course, is presented in the Old Testament several times. We know about Isaiah 53 where the Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all. He bore the sins of many and therefore redeemed those many from the judgment and wrath. But In Psalm 69 is an especially poignant presentation of this text. And several of the verses of this text are appropriated in the Gospels 
and applied to the Lord Jesus, making it clear that it is a messianic text. But consider Psalm 69 at verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, Thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from Thee. Let not them that wait on Thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek Thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for Thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. Now this is the psalmist writing in the Spirit of Christ about the human condition and thoughts of Christ during the crucifixion and around the time of the crucifixion. That great reproach was heaped upon Him, reproach beyond humiliation, and that His sins had been imputed to Him, that is, our sins had been imputed to Him, and He was treated in the sight of God and man as guilty for our sins that were laid upon Him. And this was a great shame to Him and a reproach to Him. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And Christ's disciples recalled this verse and knew that it applied to the Lord Jesus. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The Lord Jesus was set dead set towards accomplishing the sacrifice that He came into this world to accomplish. And nothing could dissuade Him or turn Him away. No amount of wrath and indignation and plotting and scheming and hatred and sneering and despising could do it. But yet He had to bear all those things too in the process of working to obtain our redemption. And then at verse 19, Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before Thee. God the Father saw the people who hated Jesus. He saw the devil who accused Jesus and who tempted Jesus and who despised Jesus. And He saw His feckless disciples who were selfish and squabbled amongst themselves and were dull of hearing and who objected to the offering of Christ made. We remember Peter well. Let it not be so. Be it far from thee, he said of Christ, offering himself up as a sacrifice. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, when lost men die, you see, they then face the judgment and wrath for their sin. Therefore, for us, Christ died only once. This is the Hebrews author's argument in supplement of his other statements about the reason Christ only sacrificed Himself once and not many times, as in the Mosaic system. Therefore, for us, Christ died only once also. But when He died, the judgment ended for us all. Christ's and His beloved people. You see, there's the departure from the way it used to work. For it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. But when Christ died once for His people's sin, the judgment 
was brought to an end. It was concluded for us all, Christ and His beloved people. We're in Christ. He's no longer under wrath and judgment. And praise God, neither are we. Now for us who have trusted in Jesus, death is no longer the prelude for judgment and wrath, but rather Christ's propitiatory death put an end to judgment and the wrath of God for our sin. Notice Christ's declaration regarding this and His embrace of the substitutionary death described in Psalm 69. We read of this in John's Gospel, the 19th chapter, which we read earlier. Verses 16 to 18, verses 28 to 30. Then delivered Pilate him, therefore, that is Christ, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Now the Lord used the hands of wicked men to offer up the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that day. The Scriptures make it clear that it was God that struck Christ for our crimes, and yet He used the wicked hands and filthy hearts of sinful men to carry out the execution on His behalf and for His people's rescue. And even though God determined that they should put Him to death, nevertheless, they're held liable for the murder of the Savior. The martyr Stephen made it clear, you've become His murderers and betrayers. Even though He's risen in power and glory and seated at the right hand of God, nevertheless, you see the guilt of the sinner who carries out the purposes of God from before the foundation of the world is held to account for those sins. We're responsible for what we do, even if what we do is ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. So you see, these people crucified Christ. Then at verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, this is after the darkness, after the cry, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? After the mockings and scornings of the wicked rulers that sat around laughing at Him, and after the repentance of the thief and the murderer, and Christ's promise of salvation for that man, after all of that, you see, Jesus, knowing all things were now fulfilled, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now this is interesting because in Psalm 69, after Christ bearing our sins is acknowledged, and after all the scorn and hatred is described, and after the brokenness and the rebuke that fell on Jesus is described. What's the last factual thing that Psalm 69 records about what would happen to the Lord Jesus many centuries later? The very last event recorded there in Christ's death is the last event recorded in Psalm 69. 
And that is that they should give him vinegar to drink for his thirst. And surely, as it was reported in Psalm 69, so it happened. So Christ required it to happen. So Christ acted in order to bring about that it happened. He said, I thirst. And they proceeded just as foretold to give him vinegar to drink for his thirst. But then the final declaration that Christ made, what? When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. So that final declaration of Christ, it is finished, you see, terminates the judgment and the wrath that He should have received for our crimes and terminates the judgment that we should enter into upon our own death. It's finished, you see. The sacrifice is done. The veil is rent in twain. The mercy seat is red with blood of victims slain. Why then stand we out with fear? The blood of Christ invites us near. There is a derailment of the train of judgment that all of poor wicked men can expect to find upon their death. Then the judgment. But not so with Christ. Upon His death, the judgment is taken away and satisfied. And so it is for all of His people who put their trust in Him. You see, Aaron could never finish it for the sins of his people. He could never finish it. It was never finished, was it? He could only continue it on and on and on, coming back and back and back daily and weekly and monthly and yearly and by the decade and the century. He could never finish it, could he? He could never bring an end to the sacrifices for sin because those sacrifices could never take away our sin. But our Christ, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, finished off the judgment for His people's sins once and for all at Calvary. That's what this Scripture is teaching us. And it's why Christ only makes one sacrifice for sin. No wonder we are comforted greatly by God's solemn oath to Christ, Thou shalt be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But then there is the last half of verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 9. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now this is talking about when the Lord Jesus returns. That's why it's called the second time. He came the first time and all the Jewish people were thinking that He should establish His kingdom and run all the Romans out. But He had more important matters to deal with. He was there to save His people from their sins, not from the sins of other people whom they despised. And so all the Jews were dissatisfied with Christ. Well, all He did was come and die on a cross and maybe rise again from the grave. What about all the important stuff we wanted Him to do? Why didn't He do that first? Or at least hang around and do it for us before He left? Or just dispense with 
this cross stuff and get to the real point of Messiah. That's the way they thought about Him. That's the way they still think about Him. But you see, the promise of Christ's return here is that it will be under very different circumstances. It will not be around two. Jesus isn't going to come back and say, you remember how Aaron had to repeat the sacrifices? Well, I'm here to go through it again for you. It turns out that the first sacrifice won't be the last. Here I am, like Aaron. It's just a longer period of time between offerings. No, that's not it at all. That's why he says that he shall appear the second time without sin. He's not coming to judge or to rescue his people from their sin. That's all over and done with. The promise of Christ's return is under very different circumstances than the first time he came. It is not around two in sacrifices for sin. Aaron kept coming around over and over and over again for the same sad thing, but not the Lord Jesus. I thought I would read to you the way the NIV version puts this text. Chapter 9 and verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. And this is what the text means. He'll appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now we have the promise of salvation. We've already been justified before God. He's declared us righteous for Jesus' sake. And He's talking here about salvation of the body. The redemption of the body where all of our sin that we still are caught up in, though we are being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, is stripped away from us as are our corrupt bodies transformed to be made like unto His glorious body. This is the culmination of the salvation which Christ has already accomplished on the cross. Note well, the Jews thought Jesus should establish His kingdom. They didn't appreciate the desperate need for someone to save them from their sins. They didn't understand that they had no righteous standing in Christ's kingdom and that their sins would doom them there if Christ had come and established His kingdom firsthand. All of the Lord's people would have been destroyed. We'd all have still been under the wrath for our sin. There'd have been none of us found worthy to stand in the kingdom of Christ in a rule of righteousness in this world. We'd have been like all the rest of the wicked, a shut up unto judgment. So it was necessary that Christ must come first to save His people from their sin by His sacrifice for their sin so that we might be fit to live in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that they, that is the Jewish people and believers, and perhaps we as believers all fail to grasp the crucial work of Christ for us now in the heavenly tabernacle. If you read these texts in the last half of Hebrews, you cannot help but be impressed by the fact that the high priestly work of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle at the throne of God 
is a necessary and crucial part of the redemption of His people. It's not just a spiritual concept. It's not just an ethereal notion that Christ has made a propitiation for our sin unto God on our behalf. No, it is a tangible physical work of presenting the propitiatory offering and blood at the mercy seat of God. It's not something that can just be mentally carried out by Christ as He sets up His kingdom, for example. It was necessary that He should appear in the presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle. Just like Aaron had to appear before the mercy seat with the blood and sprinkle it there. He had to appear. The duty of the priest wasn't done once the sacrifice was slain. Imagine if Aaron had carried out sacrifices at the altar and then just gone home. Well, the work wasn't done. The duty of the priest wasn't done. It was not only that he had to make the sacrifice, he had to present that blood before God in the tabernacle to complete the propitiation unto God for the sins of the people. That's what was so bad once the tabernacle and the temple were destroyed and there was no mercy seat. There was no way to make a propitiation for the people. They could make sacrifices on this altar or that altar, but they had no place to present the blood, you see, as God's law required. The work of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle is crucial and necessary, and we ought not to just write it off as just, you know, oh yeah, and that. It's, it's absolutely essential for us. And that's why Christ being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is so essential to the rest of our souls from the notion of judgment and wrath that the priesthood of Christ starts and finishes at the beginning and at the end and leaves nothing out and doesn't peter out towards the end and fail to accomplish all through the history of the world and into eternity what it is that Christ's offering was all about. You remember in Romans 8, Paul says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Yea, rather, is risen again and seated at the right hand of glory and makes intercession for us. No one can condemn us because Christ not only died for us to pay all the price of our sin, but He was raised and He is in the presence of the glory of God in His humanity, presenting His sacrifice and making intercession for His people. This work of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle is far more necessary for our peace and salvation than is His return to set up His kingdom. Not to denigrate the return of Christ to set up His kingdom. For it is then that we will enter into the fullness of our salvation, the redemption of our very bodies at the resurrection. But we must not shortchange or denigrate the value of the priestly duty of Christ in presenting in the heavenly tabernacle His propitiation for our sins.
We ought not to begrudge Christ in glory being our high priest now. And we need to leave it to Him and the Father to decide when it's the appropriate time for His glorious return. For He is doing that which He promised to do and which is needful for His people. And at the appropriate time, He will return to complete the physical salvation of the very bodies of those who have put their trust in Him. Brother Gill has this to say about this particular notion. The end of his first appearance was to obtain salvation for his people, and he has obtained it. And there is a comfortable application of it made unto us now by the Spirit of God. But the full possession of it will be hereafter, and into this will Christ put them when He shall appear. There is a aspect of a now and not yet in the full salvation of the Lord's people. But the work that saves is done. It was finished when He said it is finished. And now He is applying that sacrifice as the propitiation for our sin. And we are justified and declared righteous already through Jesus Christ. But one day He will return Not to make another offering for sin. Not to drag up before us all our crimes and relitigate them. No. To bring the final physical salvation which has been promised for us. And I thought of that hymn that we like to sing so much. D.W. Whittle's great hymn, Our Lord is now rejected and by the world disowned by the many still neglected and by the few enthroned, but soon He'll come in glory. The hour is drawing nigh, for the crowning day is coming by and by. The heavens shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than they, the saints, shall shine in glory, as Christ shall them array. But the beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Our pain shall then be over. We'll sin and sigh no more. Behind us all of sorrow and naught but joy before, a joy in our Redeemer as we to Him are nigh in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Oh, the crowning day is coming, is coming by and by when our Lord shall come in power and glory from on high. Oh, the glorious sight will gladden each waiting, watchful eye in the crowning day that's coming by and by. And so around this Lord's table, we celebrate the sacrifice Christ made to set us free from our sin, to justify us before God, we who are unjust in our own works, to make us holy and righteous and acceptable to come into the presence of God And one day soon He will return, the Lord Jesus, in that crowning day to set up His rule, to destroy all opposition from the wicked, to transform our poor mortal bodies unto incorruptible bodies like unto His body by that power by which He conforms all things to Himself. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table that reminds us 
of the whole basis and root of our redemption, the body and blood of Christ shed for His people. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the sacrifice of Your Son that when no lamb could be found that could take away sin, nor person either, You sent forth Your Son made of a woman made under the law, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, to die in our place on Calvary's tree. And You laid our sins upon Him there and He was treated like He was guilty for them there. And all the wrath we should have received was poured out upon His sacred head and He patiently bore our sins in His body on the tree. And this bread pictures what was done to His body. It was torn and rended and sacrificed at the hands of cruel men. And yet it was the promised sacrifice by which you would redeem your people. And praise God, the Lord Jesus was faithful. Faithful unto death and beyond. And He made the perfect sacrifice. For He was the one, the only one, who was without fault and without blemish and could take away our sin. We give You the praise for it. And we honor that body that was broken for us by the eating of this bread that pictures it for us at the Lord's table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he would give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 226 in the Black Book. Horatius Bonner's hymn, All That We Were, Our Sins, Our Guilt, Our Death, Was All Our Own, All That We Are, We Owe to Thee, Thou God of Grace Alone. Number 226.